morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the elders here at OCC. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We're going to be in Psalm 40 this morning. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet upon a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord, my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you have planned for us, none can compare to you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles, surround, for troubles without number surround me. My sin has overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head and my heart fails within me. Please be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in distress. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. You may be seated. All right, how's everybody doing? Yeah. Man, I love, I love Psalm 40. Man, there's so much in here. You could do an entire series, and I know uh, there's... Uh, some people that have done an entire series on Psalm 40. I love the way that it, that it ended. It's interesting, you know, we um, kind of had that tone when we were praying for uh, the gathering today. But the way that he ends that Psalm saying, I am poor and needy. And it just made me think, this is the king of Israel. Not only is he king of Israel, but he's known as one of the greatest kings to ever live on planet earth. And his posture at the end of this Psalm is, I am poor and needy. I am broken and I am vulnerable and I need you. Uh, and that humility kind of struck me even this morning as we were praying, uh, you know, talking about what today would be like with all the people that are going to serve here and the people that are going to lead from up front and play guitar and speak and all that good stuff. But really the, the benefit of who we are as a church, if you're new today and you're expecting a bunch of people that know what they're doing and are awesome at stuff and can show you how to live life, you've come to the wrong place. We are the poor and needy people. 
And it's actually the posture that God wants from us. He is not looking for us to be high and mighty, to lift ourselves up and put ourselves on a rock. He's looking for the people that are willing to say, I can't do it, but you can. Um, and I think we have a room full of people that have gotten to that place, some in a harder road than others, but to say that we're poor and needy and we need Jesus. And I am one of those people, and there's many people in here that lead that would say, that's, the, that's my best benefit for you is to show you the vulnerable road of coming before God and saying, you know what? I need you. And a lot of what Psalm 40 is kind of is wrapped in that particular place. I mean, if you look uh, at, at this passage, let's, let's just read it together uh, and we'll kind of dig in because I really want to focus on the, the first three verses, but really uh, the first verse is where we'll, we'll spend a lot of time. But verse one says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God, and many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Now, a lot of what I love about Psalm 40, especially these first three verses, it's really the gospel being displayed. I mean, we're going to kind of lean in one particular place, but I mean, the gospel's kind of on display here. It starts, I mean, you just know because you read the rest of it that he's, David is in a pit. He's in a pit of despair. He's in this pit and he, he needs God to come and he waits patiently for the Lord and the, the Lord responds. But it makes me think of Ephesians chapter two where it says you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You weren't just a little bit gone. Like I think sometimes we come to church thinking, oh, I'll come to church, I'm a, you know, I've been a little bit bad, had a season, you know, where I was bad and I need to get a little bit better, bring the kids there, you know, they've been kind of naughty and bring them. No, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You had no hope. You were in a pit of despair. And then God comes in his great mercy and sets your feet upon a rock. And the way that he did that was by what we see here at this table, by the broken body and the poured out blood, this is how he got you out of the pit to resuscitate you, not yell from above the pit to say, hey, you need to get out of there, but to go down into your pit and grab you. That's the gospel and set your feet upon a rock. And then the response to the gospel is what? We sing, puts, puts a hymn of praise. We don't sing because we have to, because that's what's obligatory at church. I gotta sing. I might lift my hand because the guy next to me is making me feel awkward. No, we sing because we've been rescued. We've been saved. We've been pulled out of the pit. And then what? Everybody's going to hear, right? Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in it because they're going to see that I was pulled out of the pit. They're going to see what I know, which is that Jesus saves and nothing else does. So I love the gospel on display in this, in this hymn and in this psalm. It, it's, it's amazing. But I also love what Bono kind of pulled out of it. You know, if anybody knows, any U2 fans in here? Anybody U2? Only a couple? I mean, come on. I'm gets, I get, as I get older and say anything about you two, there's less and less hands. Guys, I'll educate you later. Um, but Bono and, and the band wrote, at the end of writing and recording War, uh, one of their great albums, one of their early albums, they were actually pretty poor at the time. Um, they, they wrote 40, which is Psalm 40. Uh, and it's, you know, I waited patiently for the Lord. I'm not going to sing it all. Uh, but, you know, that's exactly, you know, you can tell. I, I do dig you too. But 
at the end of this, when they were recording this, they needed one more song, but they were getting booted out of the recording studio because their time was up and they didn't have any more money. Um, so they had like 10, 15 minutes left. And the, what's interesting is the, the bass player had already left. So it's The Edge and Bono and the drummer, and they're, they're sitting there and they're trying to figure it out. And Bono pulls out the, but you think this is like this massive thing where they thought about it. And Bono had dreams and visions of what he was going to do. And he, Psalm 40 came to mind. And they wrote this amazing song because it's really popular. And it was 10 minutes and he's flipping through that and they really had nothing. He's like, let's just riff through this psalm right here. And he, he comes up with this whole thing, you know, sings it's the first three verses and goes, goes right out of the text. And then he has this chorus, how long, how long to sing this song? And it's all about what? Waiting. The whole thing is about waiting. And I was telling somebody outside after the first gathering that it's interesting that they didn't really, the song wasn't that one that they were expecting to be a big deal. They kind of, it was a throwaway at the end of the album. And then it got so big that, because if you listen to the recording, go listen to the, the, the regular recording in war. And it's like, it's all right. Go listen to the live version and it will blow your mind. I mean, it's so much because they got more excited about it. Like people went crazy. They would play it at the end of their concerts and the whole, they would stop singing and it'd be the whole stadium is, how long to sing this song? And it's because everybody understands what it's like to wait. Everybody understands what it's like, whether you know Jesus or not, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you have followed God or not, you've, you've looked up at the sky and said, how long, how long am I gonna be here? How long am I gonna wait in this pit? How long am I gonna be in this season of life? How long am I gonna feel lonely, be in my room looking up and wondering, when is my life gonna change? When am I gonna have what they have? When am I gonna have this type of security. When am I going to find out where I'm going to school? When am I going to get that letter from the college I, I've applied to? You know, how long am I going to have to, you know, be in school and wait for summer to come? But it's that looking up and going, how long till I get a diagnosis? How long till I know what's going to happen in my marriage or my relationship? You know, in the simple side, you know, how long am I going to wait for this guy to, you know, call me, text me, I am, DM me, DM me, whatever. You know, I don't even know all those Snapchat me, you know, we got a streak. It's great. Um, how long? We all understand that. And my, my whole thing is there's this value. God, across the landscape of Scripture, over 150 times, specifically the words wait on the Lord are in Scripture. And then there's way more than that, just references to waiting in Scripture. So you see this high value for waiting in scripture, but why? We hate it. <laughs> we hate waiting, like we're not really good at it. In fact, even more recently, I was thinking about this, like in 1994, I sent my first email in terms of technology. Um, and you know, AOL had been around for a while and Prodigy, some people still have their AOL address, which is, that's embarrassing to Jesus. I mean, I don't even know how that's possible, but this was like email, like World Wide Web email in 1994. I was at FSU. Like we, I, at FSU, I went, I mean, I'm old. I, we went to the library and did research. Like we, Dewey Decimal System, anybody? Like you flip through the card catalog and do the thing. Um, that's how we lived life. I mean, that was, that was it. The internet was not, like you, it was all text-based. Like you would, and nobody could have access to it unless you were with a university or um, with the government back in 1994. And you'd get in there and you thought this was the coolest thing. You type something, Beatles lyrics. I could get Beatles lyrics and that was cool. I was like, wow, you know, it was amazing. 
And then all of a sudden, it was just this explosion. You know, in 1998, I worked for a technology company. Some, some of you know this, some of you don't. I was a systems analyst and had a degree in computer science and engineering. And I just kind of watched this explosion of technology. And I thought, this is, this is going to be the most amazing generate to grow up where we were walking around with telephones connected to walls with a cord. Like I'd be talking to my girlfriend and have to go, leave me alone and walk around a corner and pull the cord with me into a bedroom. And I, and I had a rotary phone. And just, you know what I mean? I had one of those on the wall, plastered to the wall. And I thought, man, it's going to be amazing to grow up with all this crazy stuff. We're going to be like, you know, Mr. Spock, you know, on the thing. And that, it happened. It's like all of a sudden technology came. And then what happened? Nobody was freaking happy. Like we're still so impatient. I remember Louis C.K. came out with this routine. He was on Conan. And I remember watching it several times. And you laugh at it because it's true. Like he said, everything, everything's amazing and nobody's happy. Like all this amazing technology is wasted on the freaking worst generation ever, which is me. Like we're all so impatient, including me. You know, we sit there and we look at our phone and we're going, uh, wait a second, it's going to space. I mean, why are you so impatient? I mean, it's unbelievable. Like we, like flying, like the ridiculousness of flying. He talks about that. It's like, we, we, get to, we get mad about waiting 20 minutes to board and sitting on the tarmac for 40 minutes. And, but then did you fly, like the miracle of flight? Did you get, were you, you were in a chair in the sky and you're complaining, oh, it won't, I can't, it won't, uh, internet doesn't work on the plane. I mean, it's, we've gotten so bad. In fact, in, in like physiologically over the last 15 years, Neurologists say that our brains have changed. Like our attention span went from like 14 seconds to, the, to on like instantaneous stuff to eight. I mean, we're in the goldfish range now. That is no joke. We're like, we're so impatient. We're like, we cannot wait for anything. And it's affected all of us dramatically. Uh, there was a doctoral article I read um, that mentions this, this whole idea of how uh, technology has affected the brain. It says, we are not used to waiting anymore, like the generation. This has not made us necessarily better. Now, technology in and of itself is benign. It can do some really great things, but these are some of the negative things. We're not used to waiting, and the more our technology caters to our immediate desires, the less we feel willing to wait. We're, we're terrible at waiting, and part of it is technology. Now, a big portion of it is sin. I mean, a big portion, like impatience is the child of pride. Because we want to control our lives. And we can't control. The thing is, is we think that we can. And it started in, back in the Garden of Eden. Like the, the idea that we can control this. It can happen when we want it to happen. I don't want to pay attention or listen to God anymore. I mean, that's what happened in the Garden. The, the serpent, it wasn't about like this surface sin and eating an apple. It was about rebellion against God because God was in control and they weren't. And all of a sudden, the enemy comes and says, you can control your own life. You can be a God. You can do what you want. You can be the captain of your own ship. You can do it the way that you want to do it. And they're like, yeah, we can. And that's how they got booted out of the Garden of Eden. Two fiery angels, you're not coming back in. Separation, holy God, and sinful man. Sin, part of, part of that is our, our impatience. The, the fact that we want to control our lives. But the reality is, is we can't control when the dryer breaks. But we think we can. We lose our mind, but we can't control when it rains, when traffic is bad, and the things where we lose our mind. 
And patience is even not just in Scripture. Patience is a virtue. It's, you know, it's a fruit of the Spirit. But even in intellectual circles 50 years ago, Patience was the, the thing that was actually a marker of intelligence and impatience was for the ignorant people. But that's not the way that it is in the world today. Listen to this in Psychology Today. It says, the world does not see patience as a position of strength, but rather a position of weakness, of wanting, of lack. Powerful people don't have to wait. Powerless people do. This is the, I mean, that's, you know, the line, it's like you at Disney and you got a special pass. I mean, <laughs> look at you peasants over there, the little people, because you don't have this fast pass. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of patience. Listen to this. Patience allows you to take back control over the capricious and unstable world and plant that control firmly within yourself. Now listen, because that sounds like, oh, this is you know, definitely a secular idea, but listen to what the what the doctor says here, patience does not give you the power over circumstances. Patience allows you to control yourself in the midst of circumstances. Now that, that is a biblical, this is somebody, you know, talking about patience and the way that it affects the mind and the way that we react in our attitude and our heart in life. This is not even, a, this has nothing to do with the Bible, but this is absolutely what they're, what they're pulling out here with patience being a virtue is that patience does something in us in that despite our circumstances, despite what's going on, that we could breathe, that we cannot lose our mind, that what's happening inside of us is a positive thing and not a negative thing despite our circumstances. I would love that, but that's not the society we live in. And patience is, a, it's about our control but we'll never get to decide what our life looks like. We, it's, it's a control in life is absolutely pseudo control because God controls everything. He is sovereign on high, on high. And it's one of the reasons that he wants us to wait. But there's, there's some other deeper spiritual reasons that he wants us to wait and that are good and that we see in scripture. So we're, we're gonna ask that question today. Um, one, we're gonna ask, why is it good to wait? We're gonna ask another question, why does God himself wait? But we're gonna look first, why is it good for us to wait? And the first one is, God is good to those who wait. God is good to those who wait. This is one of those things that's just clearly in scripture. You know, in terms of showing you all the examples or, you know, seeing exactly how that kind of plays out, one, we can see that God is good in general to the human race. You might look around and say, well, gosh, I look out there and I was like, why does God do all these things? But think about what you experience on a daily basis that you never look up and say, thank you, God, like walking out to the ocean and feeling the sea breeze. I mean, the only reason you got that is because of God. The only reason that you get the rain when you need it, the only reason that you eat the food that you eat, the reason that you get to, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, marriage is part of common grace. Everything that you experience that is good is coming down to you from the Father of heavenly lights, it says in James. So if you've experienced things that are good on planet Earth, God gave them to you. And that's across the board. All of us experience common grace. But there's a specific reservation for those who wait on the Lord, a specific type of goodness. It says Isaiah in Isaiah 64, 4, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. We see this in so many different places in scripture, that God is good to those who wait. There's something that God does in the waiting to you and me. And we'll see how this kind of builds as we go to the second one. 
Two is very simple. Good things just take a little time. They do. We're in a society where good things, we, I mean, we, we live instantaneous. But in reality, I think in, in the guts of who we are, the, the really good things and some of the simple things, they just take a little time. They just take a little time. They're better when you wait. It's interesting. I was with some friends and family uh, in Atlanta. We were seeing John Mayer. Uh, I know you're jealous. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, so we're there and we, we're at a restaurant called Marlowe's in Midtown, if you ever want to go. And they had a couple different burgers on their menu and I'm a sucker for a good burger. And I, I'm kind of cheap. Like you see all the you know, expensive entrees. You're like, oh, I'm just going to go for a burger. Um, and, but, but there was one burger that was so expensive. Like it was comparatively to the other one. And I'm like, hmm, there must be a reason. Um, and usually I'm like, ah, oh, just get the human. It's just meat, right? Um, somebody in here is about to go, what are you talking about? A foodie in here is probably freaking out right now. Um, I'm very sorry about the tofu people and the people that eat vegetarian, uh, but you don't have to wait for that to get good. Um, so when we're looking at, the, I, I decided to order the expensive one. And uh, I'll tell you what, I, I bit into that thing and I, I swear, I time traveled. I mean, it was absolutely out of control. It was so good. Dan McFerrin was with me. He's going, it was the craziest. And it was Wagyu beef. Anybody? Wagyu, Japanese beef. It was aged and dried. And they made a burger with it. I mean, you, I mean, that's usually steaks. It was a burger with that stuff. I mean, if anybody knows anything. And I had to look up, why, does this, why is it so good? You know why? Good things just take a little time. They age it. They hang it. And when it, when it hangs, the more time it sits there and it ages, all that fat and marbling and all that good stuff that maybe we're not supposed to eat that makes us die sooner. Well, I'm going to see Jesus before you will. Don't laugh. So all that good stuff is just soaking into the meat. And during that waiting period, it's just getting better because good things, God has created things all around us that just take time. The rainforest didn't happen in a second. I asked my mother-in-law was in the first, she's 100% Italian. I said, I asked her, she was sitting right there. She was mortified because I was talking to her in the middle of the thing. I said, hey, Nani, how, you know, is the sauce good? Like right when you make it, like when you crush it all up and do the, and she's got an amazing, from old country, it's amazing. I don't even, it's just magical. I said, is it good right then? She's like, no. I said, when's it, when's it good? Hours and hours, next day. Like it's, it's good because good things just take a little time. Wine, I mean, is it good when they, it's not even wine. If it doesn't, if you hadn't waited any time, it's just grape juice, which is what we got here. It's going to be nice, but it's not vintage wine. It's vintage. Why? Because you had to wait for it. I mean, you get an 80s. How, I mean, and the longer you wait, it's more expensive because the better it is. It's better. It's better. Anthony Bourdain. I remember watching the specials before he died. He was talking about steaks. And me and Dan have talked about this too. We like we definitely will talk about meat. And I apologize again if that's not your jam. Um, but there will be ribs and barbecue at the wedding feast of the lamb. Um, and so he said with a steak, when you take it off the grill, don't touch it. You got to wait. You got to wait. He says seven minutes. I say, let it roll for 10. If waiting's good, wait a little bit more and it's better. But don't touch it because that's when the magic happens when you take it off. That's when it gets good. And it's, there's a, we could go on and on. I could ask, I could quiz. What are some good things that, 
that are, are better when you wait. I mean, Christmas, it's better when you wait. And when you're little, you don't think so, but actually it is. If Christmas was every day, you wouldn't enjoy it. It's just the way that it is. Christmas is not every day. It's once a year, and that's what makes it awesome, right? Good things just take a little time, and it's a principle that God has woven into the fabric of everything that we do. James 5, 7 says this. says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. He's saying there's something's going to happen to you, brothers and sisters. Something's going to happen while you're waiting on the Lord. He's going to be what? Good things just take a little time. God's hands are working in the soil, bringing things to life. We've sung it in here. He's doing something. And this, in James 5, this is in the context of suffering. This is in the context of a bunch of people that felt like they were in a pit and they were waiting on the Lord. And James is saying something magical has happened. You, the, 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 the process is happening. The magic is happening. The sauce is getting better. You're, something's happening with you. God's chipping some things off of you, chipping some pride off, chipping some other stuff off. And he's giving you some virtues. He's changing who you are in the waiting. There's something special about the waiting. God values waiting across the pages of Scripture. He builds intimacy and trust in the waiting. He transforms us. He grows us. He changes our, our character. He changes our character. But, but for us, we, we kind of assume we've waited for, for God. I've, I've had those seasons where like, all right, God, I waited. And then you're still waiting and nothing's happening. And you wait and nothing happens. And our perception of waiting a long time and God's perception are different. And, what, and what, what needs to happen? I mean, it just, it makes me think, because I'm, I'm a child of God and it makes me think of children. And children think they've waited. You know, when, they, when you tell them we're not there yet and they ask three minutes later, they think they've waited to ask the question again. When are we going to get there? Um, but they haven't. It has not been that, that long. And the, there was, it's a quote by Jen Wilkin, but this is actually rewritten. You, you won't take credit for it, but this is actually better than Jen Wilkin's. My wife kind of restructured it to the Harmon life, but we all overestimate what God will do in a year. All of us do that. We think it's going to happen tomorrow. This, this whole thing's going to happen. But he, listen to this. But we underestimate what he will do in 10. And you don't realize it until you've gotten down the road. Leave that up there for just a second so that you can soak that all in. Write it down. We all overestimate what God does or will do in a year. We underestimate what he'll do in a tent. We're always mad in the process of waiting and we're thinking, he's gonna do it now, he's gonna do it. And then we, it, it doesn't happen. And then all of a sudden, the path changes. The wor our world changes. Things all around us begin to change. And then all of a sudden, we turn around and we look back 10 years later and we're like, we see the, the tapestry of God's love through the journey he's put us on that was way better than the one that we had planned. He's given us way different things, but way better things than we could possibly have imagined. I remember in 2005, even thinking about the infancy of what it would look like to plant a church. I didn't even know if I would be the lead pastor. I didn't know what I would have. I just thought, this is, I think God's gonna lead us in, in this way. We're gonna plant a church. We even kind of knew kind of what area it was gonna be in. And I thought, oh yeah, we're a, we're a year or two out, yeah. I'm, re I'm ready. I was not ready for you people at all. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it, in 2015, when we moved in here, I mean, we were 
you know, 70, 80 people wondering what was going to happen. And this was our chance to put down roots. We planted the church in November of 2012. We started meeting small groups in 2010. And good, good things just take a little time. I mean, it just didn't, things were like, I was like, it's going to, it's going to, people would say, man, it's going to blow, church is going to blow up. This is what's going to happen. This is going to happen. No, God knew how he was going to work in the soil of OCC, how things were going to happen. And then what, 2015, it's, I mean, 15, you know, 10, 10 years later, and now it's 2022 or, you know, even well beyond that. And God's, I feel like in some ways we're still a church plant, you know, where God's still moving us forward and doing some amazing things, but good things. They take a little time. And it's a virtue that God leads us to with this, this expectation that he leads us on. That's why I think it's great to journal. It's like I've said this many times, it's, I've never been a big journaler, but I started in 2005 and take breaks sometimes and I wish I hadn't. But you go back and you look and you see just God's faithfulness in your life when you journal because we overestimate what God will do in a year. We underestimate what he'll do in 10 so good things just take a little time. Third one is God renews our strength when we wait. And this one's right out of the word of God. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But listen to this. But they who wait for the Lord shall what? Shall renew their strength. There's something in the waiting that energizes us gives us spiritual strength for the journey. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There's a stamina that happens and is formed and the only way to do it is, in, is waiting. It's the way that God could have done so many things instantly but chose to, to make them a process because it was better for us. And there's something deep down, even as a parent, I realize there's something about even joy that's tied into waiting. There's something about the dark canvas of the brokenness of this world and God's perfection and glory and redemptive plan and the, the bright light of his glory shining on that dark canvas that just seems right. I don't understand it. I'm not sure why there has to be the dark canvas of sin to highlight the amazingness of God's goodness and his glory, but it's God's plan. It's the way that he's laid it out and waiting's a lot the same way. Why do we wait? I don't know, but there's something deep down in the fabric of the way that God has created you where we know that waiting's good, but we resist it. We fight it. We don't want it because we don't trust and we always are heading back to in our sin towards the garden. That's why the Apostle Paul said, hey, don't submit again to the yoke of slavery, which is us. Slavery is actually us controlling our own lives. Freedom is when we go open the hands and go, I'm going I'm to get on the Jesus train and ride that train. And I'm not driving it. Jesus is. And that's where freedom is found. But we always are wanting to control everything and grab everything and do everything on our own. But God renews our strength when we wait. And, and he gives us eyesight like eagles. We can see things from a different perspective is what that means. Like we can mount up like eagles and fly and, and see things that we've never seen when we wait. When we wait, we get a perspective. The people that have waited and been in the pit and gone through it and unfaithfully or faithfully made it out to the point where they're trusting God. I mean, those, when you need advice, those are the people that you go to the seasoned people. 
You do. That's a nice way to say old people. Seasoned. Um, But you go to the people that have been through it, that have waited on the Lord, that have allowed God's seasoning, God's chipping away, God's refining fires to change their character. And they have eyes to see. You ask them about a relationship, and they're like, you need to dump him right away. I mean, they just know. They know that job is going to bury you. I mean, those are the people that have gone through it. They've been in the pit, and they've been seasoned by waiting because God renewed their strength when they waited. God, God gave them vision like an eagle. You know, it's, it's, what, I, it's what I think about in my, that season that I went through in 2005. Many of you know, at the same time, I got struck with some strange undiagnosed neurological disorder where I had chronic pain and it was just a horrible season, but worst three and a half years of my life and I've dealt with it ever since. Um, but it was one of the worst seasons back then. And part of it was just me not trusting God, me being in the pit of depression, anxiety and despair, just trying to figure it out. But getting to the bottom of that pit where I realized doctors weren't gonna save me, uh, the internet certainly wasn't gonna save me, it almost killed me, just getting to the bottom of the pit to find that Jesus was there. He was in the pit. He wasn't outside the pit yelling down in there going, I hope things are all right down there. It really looks dark and bad. Someday you're going to wait long enough and I'm going to pluck you out and put your feet on a rock. I mean, that's kind of how you read the passage sometimes. But what you realize is that that's where Jesus is. He's at the bottom of our pits. He's at the bottom. He's honking that horn right now. I'm just kidding. But he's, he's there in the, in, the, in the bottom. And I think sometimes we all want to be ejected out of our circumstances. I do. When there's pain, I mean, we are averse to pain. We're averse to that, those seasons of waiting, and we just want to be ejected out. Can you change this circumstance? Can you take me out of this pain? Can you heal this instantaneously? Can you make this happen right now? We want to be ejected out of our circumstances. But the way that God works that's better for us, even though we don't feel like it will be, is he, he doesn't eject us out of our circumstances. He injects himself in to our circumstances. What does it say in Psalm 23? It says, you know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil. Why, why does David fear no evil walking through the valley of the shadow of death? Because you are with me in the circumstances. Not on the edge of the pit going, man, it's terrible down out there. This looks bad. That valley looks bad. No, he's in the valley of the shadow of death. He's in it with you, walking with you, protecting you, refining you, changing you, looking beyond you to know exactly when he's going to set your feet upon a rock, when he's going to walk with you out of the valley of the shadow of death, because that's what he does. That's how he works. You know, I was thinking about, you know, you've got how God, you know, God, God is good to those who wait, you know, good things just, they just take a little time and God renews our strength when we wait. But, you know, what's the overarching, why does God wait? Like he, when he does things, he waits. He has a a, a tempo that's different than ours. 
You know, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. He just has a different timetable. He's outside of space and time. He looks at things differently than we do. We have a myopic view in comparison to Jesus. And if you look at, you could pick a lot of different narratives in Scripture, but I love this one. In, in, in John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus, and Lazarus is resurrected from the dead, but the story's kind of tumultuous because he's, he's sick. Jesus knows he's sick. He's got his friends that he loves and that he cares about are coming and telling him, hey, Lazarus, your friend, is sick. But he, he, the way he reacts in this is a mystery. But it gives you an indication. It answers the question, why does God wait? So if you look, just even put a cross-reference to Psalm 40 in here. In John 11, 5 and 6, it says this. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So those are the, you know, those Martha and Mary, brother Lazarus, Jesus close to them. So Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. And then look at this in verse six. You got to notice this. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed there two days longer in the place where he was. You picking up what I'm laying down? The so, conjunctive adverb for you English people. The so right there is important. It's, it's strange and mysterious. It's the same as a conjunctive adverb. Like it's in this case would be like thus or hence. So he loved them, so he waited. And that doesn't even make sense in our world, right? In our world, the way that we see that, we equate waiting with withholding. But God equates waiting with loving. That's so strange to me. But it's beautiful. There's something about being able to read about Jesus who walked on planet earth. It takes, I mean, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, you know, over heaven, over earth. He's the one that actually walked on planet earth. If you're wondering what God is like, look at Jesus. And here we look at Jesus. And this is what gives us an indication of how God takes waiting and says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna love you by making you wait. And he does it in this story. It's so amazing. He says, I'm, I'm going I'm to stay here two more days because I love you. Because it's going to be for your good and for God's glory that I wait. And then he goes to Bethany two days later. And the reason that you know that there's, it's, it's all about love is that he gets there and he rolls into town and he has these two encounters with Mary and Martha. They all come out. And then we have the shortest verse in the Bible. What does it say when, when, when Martha comes out and then Mary comes out? Two, it's two words. Anybody know it? Jesus wept. He cried that, that it was his sovereign will that, that, that he would wait, but he still was compassionate. It still broke his heart that Lazarus died, that he had to walk through those four days of sickness into death. He was in pain. He suffered. His sisters had to watch him die, and it broke Jesus' heart. And everybody that was surrounding that scene, hundreds of people were, were on looking. As they, they saw him weep, what did they say? They said, look how much he loves them. And then in his sovereign power and in his might, he calls Lazarus, Lazarus out of the grave. Just imagine. It changed everything. And I think about, I think about just the table and what Jesus did for you and me and where Jesus was leading even in these moments in John chapter 11. He's trying to do something as he's on planet earth and he's trying to do this with you and me too. 
because sometimes we have a small view of who Jesus is. And this is, this is to take us from the myopic view of how we look at Jesus to the expansive view that, that he is everything. And in those, in those days and in those moments, Jesus was walking around and he was on fire healing everybody. Like he was walking on the scene and doing amazing things, but he was also retreating and then coming back and saying, you're missing the point. You're thinking this is the, the point that you can get stuff from me. And then he's pointing them back and saying, I'm the bread. That's not the bread. He had just fed the 5,000 when he said that. Look, y'all are looking for bread. You're looking for miracles. You're looking for the stuff that I can do. They had their hands in his pockets and not around his neck. And he's like, you need to see me as the savior, not, a, not the healing. And when he did, when he performed this miracle, he did the most loving thing that he could do in waiting. And he, he let them know that, that, look, if I just heal, then you're gonna see the healing. And I want you to see the healer because the healer is what you need. And he's pointing to himself. And on the night before he gave his life away for you and me, he did something to point, our, to point us to him, to say, I can do anything. I can take anybody out of a pit. I can go into death and give you life. And this is how it's gonna happen. And he instituted communion. He pointed at the table and he did it for two reasons. One, because he said, what are you gonna do while you wait? What are we gonna do as a church as we wait on the Lord to return? Right here, eyes on the cross, eyes on Jesus. The other thing that we're gonna do is we're gonna do it together. It's the whole point of communion. And on the night he was with his friends, best sermon illustration ever. And they didn't even get it, you know? I, wish it, I would love to talk to him after that. I know what it's like to have an illustration not work out and everybody doesn't understand it. But we all know it now, right? This is my body broken for you. In the same way, he, he took the cup. This is, this is my blood poured out for you. This is a new covenant. Oh, your old covenant, the system that you did, that was, that was God's sovereign will to institute and point to this moment. You used to have a system and now you have a savior. And every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you remember me and you're gonna do this until I return. This is what you do while you wait. This is how we wait as a church. Eyes focused, a whole bunch of different people from different backgrounds, all united under the blood of Christ. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, this table is for believers. Um, and the apostle Paul would say in Corinthians chapter 11, he was instructing that church. He's saying, hey, don't flippantly come to the table. This isn't just a routine that we all do and we just kind of do it because it's a church thing. No, it's a sacrament and it actually, it, it means something. So don't feel the obligation if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus to, to come to the table. But I would say this is also a, a huge invitation to everybody in the room. If you don't know Jesus, and God is working in your heart, has worked in your heart today, maybe for the first time, your eyes are open and you see that he saves and nothing else does, that he is the only way to salvation. He is the only way to be reunited with the God that created you. He did it through the cross. He, he bore your sins and took them into the grave. If that's all of a sudden clicked in your mind, then this table is open for you. And today could be your first communion. And that would be a beautiful, beautiful thing. 
So we're gonna call whoever's serving today. If you could go ahead and come forward. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. These guys are gonna, they're gonna lead you through uh, communion. They're gonna, just gonna be taking the bread and dipping it in the grape juice. It hasn't been waited for to turn into wine. Um, don't grab the cup. Try to do that. Some, we have to say it because somebody will do it. Um, but take your time, pray, or come forward. Like you, some, some are just, you've been waiting because this is an act of worship or you're just ready to come forward, come forward. And, uh, and then we'll respond together. So God, I just thank you for this table and what it represents that you gave us. Nobody could possibly come up with this on their, on their own. It is divine and you came up with a way for us to get our hearts, our minds, and our souls wrapped around your saving grace. So God, put us in that place in our mind and in our heart and in our soul. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen.